church that he's speaking to. It isn't the world in general. It isn't the world outside. It was to the world of the professing faith, those who profess faith in Christ. And so it becomes important always for us to consider and take time to think about and be refreshed in what does it mean to know Christ? What does it mean to know him? We would take seriously the warnings throughout Scripture that many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do these things in your name? And he'll say, I didn't know you. We would take seriously that the way is narrow that leads to life and the way is broad that leads to destruction and to death. But then positively as well, there's much out there to confuse the believer about what it means to have life in him. And there are many things, whether it be through personality, bad theology, or whatever influences in our life, that can take a true believer and cause unnecessarily a doubt about salvation and a doubt about the work of Christ. That The thought maybe that salvation could be lost or that we can't ever have assurance here. If many of you grew up Catholic, assurance is something that you could never have here. If someone was Islam, or uh, then they could uh, they could never have ultimate assurance they have to wait until they get to heaven but but that is not what Christ saved us for he saved us so that we could be assured and have a certain hope grounded in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we belong to him and that is a hope that belongs to all of those who share in his life and so again we want to consider over these next few weeks, and we're, we're obviously going very generally, taking some general themes that uh, explain, the, where John explains this in his uh, first epistle, and we're looking at them broadly. We're getting the big picture, but hopefully enough to, that it acts as a tool for us to either gain confidence and be reminded of who we are in him, but at the same time, if anyone is outside of Christ and says, my life is a stranger to these truths, that it would be the time you realize that there needs to be the coming to Christ in truth. Now, we're beginning with noting sin or uh, regeneration in relation to God's nature. Regeneration in relation to God's nature. In other words, what it means to have God's life. What is the very end goal of having life in Christ and sharing in the life of Christ? And we noted last week, looking at the first part of the first epistle to John... That this life, the nature of God in extending uh, salvation out to his creatures is extending essentially the opportunity and the reality of entering into relationship with him through the Son. And we noted that in the first couple of verses. He says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life... And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write that our joy may be made complete. And at the center of this is then that what... God revealed in Christ was eternal life. And this eternal life is essentially the life that the Son has always had with the Father. It is the triune life of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And so he says we, what has been manifested to us is the life. It is the eternal life. The eternal life which was with the Father. Which was with the Father from all eternity. Which has always been with the Father. And that is namely the love that the Father has always had for the Son. The Son has had for the Father. And the Spirit has enjoyed with the Father and with the Son. And that is the life that was manifested as Christ was here and revealed himself to be the Son of God. It is a life that he came and brought to us not merely to reveal the life of God but to extend it out to those who would come to him in faith and repentance and so he said in John if you remember that this is eternal life that we might know him the only true God in Jesus Christ whom he has sent. That we come and we enter into this life so that the Father loves those who belong to His Son as He loves His Son. And we enjoy and love the Father as sons in the Son. And it is this incredible and profound relationship of entering into the eternal relationship of love that has always existed within God. He says it in these ways. In chapter 5 of 1 John, he says, The testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. 
He says in verse 20, And we know that the Son of God has come, of chapter 5, and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. This is the essence then of salvation. And this is what John says. This is at the end of the, uh, the message that we proclaim. So that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So to be saved and to share in the life of God is to share in a relationship with God through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is the most intimate kind of relationship. God did not merely save to stay out of hell. God did not merely save to walk streets of gold. He saved that he would create a people who are worshipers of him through his son. And he saved so that we might enter into joyfully this love relationship that he has always enjoyed with his son. This is in profound reality. And it means then that if we are entering into this relationship, if it is salvation is to enter into this relationship of love with the Father and the Son, it is to share in the life that God has always had within himself, then to have that life is to bear the marks of the life that God has always had within himself. And that is what is going to be the burden of the rest of the epistle. It is far too common today and throughout the history of the church to bear the name of Christ, to claim to be in his service and to represent him, and even to take the title child of God while bearing no likeness to God himself and bearing no likeness to Christ. The history of the church has large swaths. You can think of the, the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages. You can think of much of what the professing church even is that bears the marks that Christ was rebuking in the letters. So this is of utmost importance then, not merely to say that one has a relationship with God, but to know what does that actually mean? What does it look like? It's also true that the confusion that error brings confuses those who are truly belong to Christ. And so this letter is to blow away the fog so that those who are falsely called Christians will be exposed and those who are truly his will be encouraged. So it's to expose and it is to encourage Let's begin then where John immediately takes us after laying down this incredible foundation and it is in verse 5. He says, this is the message that we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. That God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So the first thing that John establishes for us, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, after laying the foundation of the end being a relationship with God, is to say, who is God with whom we are in relationship? He immediately takes us then, and this is the first point, to the nature of God, his moral character. His moral character. What does it mean to have his life? Well, in order to know that, we have to know what God's life is like. And here he describes it as light, and in him there is no darkness at all. It is essentially a description, one description, of God's nature. It is defined by the metaphor of light. He later says, in a passage that we're familiar with in chapter 4, verse 8, that God is love. In John chapter 4, God is spirit. Those are the three monumental statements that give an incredible description of the nature of God. He is spirit, he is love, he is light. That is not all of who he, that he is, but those are truths essential to his being, essential to who he is as God. Now the imagery of God as light reaches back to the Old Testament, and there are a variety of nuances to it, and we're certainly not going to spend uh, all our time on that, but I would simply note this in a general sense, that God is the creator of physical light in contrast to darkness in Genesis 1-3. So the very opening of Scripture sets out these two ideas and physical realities of light and darkness to establish a contrast, to establish a contrast. And having created light and darkness, these become metaphors throughout Scripture for essentially good and evil of what is of God and what is opposed to Him. Light being those things that are of God and darkness being those things that are of the evil one. 
Light is representative then throughout the Old Testament. Again, there's a variety of nuances. But essentially, it's representative of God's nature and of his truth and of his presence and life with him. That's essentially the the ways that it's used in broad categories. Let me just give you, just so you can have it, a couple of examples of that that are significant. Many in the Psalms, Psalm 36, verse 9. You may know this. This verse is a... Memory verse, he says this, For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light we see light. Monumental statement. With you is the fountain of life. All life comes from God. It flows through God, not only physical life, but primarily even spiritual life. And it is life is manifested by living within the reality of who God is. So in his light, we see light. So all truth, all reality, all knowledge of God is known by what he reveals about himself and is consistent with himself. In Psalm 43, 4, we'll just look at a few of these. He says, then I will go to the altar of God. I will go to the altar of God. And he says, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you. And then he says, actually that was a wrong verse, so jump over to 40. That was a great verse though. That was a real, so you should memorize that before we move on. All right, but let me give you another one that's going to connect more to light. In Psalm 44, 3, he says this, By their own sword they did not possess the land, and their own arm did not save them. He says, By your right hand and your arm, and the light of your presence, for you favored them. And then, as you're familiar, in Psalm 119, 130, light is associated with his word. It is associated with his word. In a few places, but in Psalm 130, he says this, And this is essentially what we just sang about. The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. So there are many ways then that light is used. But essentially it is of the truth of God. It is the presence of God. It is of the nature of God. It is a metaphor for who God is. In the New Testament, this idea of light as a metaphor for God's nature is bound to the incarnation of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, And it's manifest in the revelation of his entire life, that he is the eternal word incarnate. So Jesus then becomes the embodiment of the light of God and is the manifestation of the divine life. So we're familiar with the opening words of the gospel. After saying that he is the eternal word, that he is God, that all things came through him, it says in verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus said during his ministry, while I am in the world, in John 9, 5, I am the light of the world. Those who belong to him are noted as being sons of the light, in John 12, 36. He says, while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of the light. So putting it all together, what does this mean, essentially? And again, looking at it very broadly. Light in John's gospel has the sense of God's self-existing life that is the source of all life and creation and is revealed in the embodiment of the Son. So to say that God is light is to say that he is the fullness and the source of all life in such a way that it speaks of his nature as he is in himself revealed in Christ. It includes everything that expresses and shows then the perfections and the glories of God. His beauty, his holiness, his truth, his glory, His goodness, all of these things are encompassed in the reality that God is light. Everything that is true, everything that is good, everything that is beautiful, everything that is holy, everything that incorporates the reality of divine love is manifest in God. He is that in himself and it was ultimately shown in the person of Christ. And by contrast, it says, just to emphasize this point, there is in him no darkness at all. There is no darkness at all. And there is the contrast again. There is nothing in God that is not good. Nothing in God that is not beautiful. Nothing in Him that is not holy. One of the most terrifying things in the entire world would be to think if there were any defect in God. If there were the slightest sin or possibility of dishonesty in God, then that would be the most horrifying thought in the world because of who He is as infinite in power and glory and knowledge and so forth. 
But here we are assured that there is nothing in God that is not good, that is not true, that is not holy, that is not pure, that is not beautiful, that is not glorious. But then this has profound implications then. Because God is light and in him there is no darkness at all, it means that these very realities then set up a conflict. A conflict between what God is and who God is and everything that is not God and that stands in opposition to him. And so one of the greatest or clearest expressions of this is found in John's gospel in chapter 3. He says this, this is the judgment that This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. And so here then becomes the issue. The reality of God's nature being a nature of truth and goodness and beauty and so forth is also that which exposes what is dark, what is unholy, what is not good. And so that God is light has this aspect to it of exposing and of revealing not only who God is but revealing everything that is not in conformity with that glory. Light exposes it reveals reality. We, we sometimes talk that way when, a, when somebody lies and the truth is brought out. We say it was brought to the light. It was brought to the light. In an ultimate sense, that is true with God. Paul said it this way, just to remind you of it in Ephesians 5.13, that everything that becomes visible is light. Everything that becomes exposed is light. It becomes evidence of the truth and its contrast of error. Now this reality then furnishes the chief cornerstone of the moral and spiritual foundation of the entire epistle and what it means to share spiritual life. It's how spiritual life and reality is measured and evaluated by conformity to who God is, by conformity to all that God has revealed himself to be. In other words, you could state it simply in this way, that God is the determiner of everything that is right and wrong. God is the determiner of everything that is true and false. God is the determiner of everything that is good and evil. It begins with understanding who God is. Let me give you one statement on that, and then we're going to begin to press this down a bit more into our own spiritual lives. One said this, Many voices compete for the prerogative of defining morality in our times, and it was no less so in the first century. Philosophers, pagan priests and priestesses, and rulers who legislated, as well as other individuals who felt entitled to do so, made claims about moral truth just as many today wish to assume that prerogative. But it is only God himself, the creator and sustainer of life, who can authoritatively define moral truth. Without that fundamental understanding of God's sovereign right over all human beings, one cannot truly know God, accept Christ, or have a mature spiritual nature. So then at the outset, John establishes this, that the heart of regeneration, at the heart of spiritual life, at the heart of salvation, at the deepest level of the being of those who are a Christian, is not merely to agree with certain things that God says is true, but into all of the revelation of God to see his beauty and his glory and to have it resonate within their souls. To have everything that God defines as the essence of goodness, beauty, holiness, and righteousness resounds in the soul of those who belong to Christ as right and true and thrilling and delightful. There is no conflict within the heart of a regenerate person with what God has revealed himself to be. To have that... To say, I'll believe this part, but I won't believe this part, though it's clearly revealed in the Word. To say, I like this aspect of God, but I don't like this aspect of God, is merely to show one to have no knowledge of Him at all. 
We don't take him in parts. We take him exactly as he is in his fullness. And that is the very evidence of being in him and sharing life in him. So the regenerate share in this nature of light and the reality of this shared life is that it gives direction, it defines desires, it sets pursuits of the lives of those who belong to him. And if it doesn't, then John addresses that in verse 6. If we say then that we have fellowship with him and walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Conversely, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of his son, Jesus, cleanses us from all sin. That means that one of the marks then of shared life is that the life of a believer Their loves, their hates, their goals, their lights, their convictions, their hopes, their habits reflect the character of God as he's revealed himself in Scripture. And if that reflects the life of a person who professes Christ, then then and only then can they have the assurance of the fact that the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. Now then, what does that look like? And here is then the the first application of that. One, it means then it reorients our lives in relationship to sin. In relationship to sin. And as we just read, that is the first thing that he addresses. It is the issue of sin and how a regenerate heart who shares in the life of God in Christ understands sin. A key and essential mark of sharing the life of God in Christ is the acknowledgement of and hatred of sin. Those who are outside of Christ have a wrong view of sin and do not share in this. It is those who say that we, in verse 8, have no sin. Those in verse 10 say that we have not sinned. Those are the ones who are strangers to the life of God. They are, in fact, deceiving themselves. They are, in fact, then making God a liar, if that is the attitude that one has, as John says. So a wrong view of sin, we could summarize that to say, gives evidence of a wrong view of God, a wrong view of self, a wrong view of Christ, a wrong view of redemption, a wrong view of the gospel, and therefore to not understand it at all. A life, however, that is marked by opposition to sin and the pursuit of obedience is the very distinction of bearing life in Christ. And John doesn't mince words, again, through the Holy Spirit. We can't, have, we can't have it both ways to divorce the reality of a life that shows the characteristics of God's life while professing to know him is to be deceived and in fact to not realize that that's showing the one who does not bear those marks to in fact be in line with the devil. Now listen to this. These are John's words. Now, no one who abides in him, well, verse 5 of chapter 3, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. In him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. There are the two categories which all men fall into. And this is an extremely important to grasp. Some of you have heard of non-lordship salvation. One of its greatest proponents is a man by the name Zane Hodges. Who says that a person can believe and merely by giving intellectual assent to the gospel. This would be the kind of false teaching that John is addressing here. Who merely gives any kind of intellectual assent to the gospel is in fact that at that point saved and born again and even if they totally deny the gospel at some point in their life if they live a life of want and sin and give no acknowledgement to a desire for obedience it doesn't matter if they were sincere at that one point of saying they believed then they're saved and you say how does he handle this in first john well he argues these are people just acting like believers unbelievers 
acting like children of the devil. But that's not what he says. He says they are children of the devil. That there is a contrast between those who have life and bear the marks of life and those who do not have life and therefore do not bear the marks of life with God. We find it in teaching in many parts of the church that there can be a carnal Christian. That somebody can believe in God and be saved but not yet given their life to repentance and obedience. They should do that but they haven't done so they can live a completely sinful, dissolute life and yet they're saved. They're Christians. Because they they were sincere at that moment. That is exactly the opposite of what Scripture says. It doesn't matter how sincere a person was at the moment of their professing faith in Christ. As a matter of fact, Jesus says that some receive it with joy. With joy. But they had no root in themselves. They were shallow. And it was easily taken away. It never bore fruit. And they never entered the kingdom of God in truth. And so it's important to understand that to claim fellowship with God and relationship with God, to bear the child of God, must bear the marks of God. One of the great self-deceptions that happens is to minimize sin. And this really happens in two ways. And I'm just going to mention this. And then we're going to take this a little more further. One is to minimize God's attitude towards sin, and secondly is to redefine sin so that it's less than what it actually is. We minimize God's attitude towards sin when we fail, first of all, to understand who God is in his majestic holiness. That he is absolutely holy. That there is no no defect in God. That he is absolutely holy, and by us bearing his image, he demands holiness from his image bearers, from his creatures. It is beginning with who God is. And if we minimize who God is, if God is no more than a favorable grandfather up in the sky, then we will not have a fear of sin. And we won't understand God's true attitude towards sin. Or if we, the second way we minimize his attitude is by thinking of grace apart from the cost of grace. It is to overemphasize love and forgiveness to the near exclusion of holiness, judgment, and his hatred of sin. Are we not familiar with the way this is done? But it produces, in fact, an entire population of people who profess Christ who have no understanding of who God actually is and the reality of sin. Or we redefine sin by comparing ourselves to others rather than to God. That's huge. Or using a standard for sin that is different than God himself. Using the standard of culture or anything other than Scripture. When the standard of sin becomes what we see in media or leaders or others rather than what God has revealed in his word. The conscience and the minds become less sensitive to sin and therefore the gospel easily slides in to merely an antidote for felt needs for some therapy for the soul to make us happier, to make us more content with life, to make us more accepting of the circumstances of life or to hope that there will be great blessing in our life or whatever. It includes letting culture define human morality in terms of in psychological or secular categories. How often do you hear even Christian leaders who get in front of a public or get a public platform and speak of mistakes, failures, moral failings, as if sin did not exist? As if sin was not a category. John is warning against that here. And he says the regenerate person understands sin in relation to God's holy nature, particularly as it's revealed in Scripture. So the knowledge of sin begins with the knowledge of God. God is the standard of sin. And so what does he say in John 3, 8? We just read it. Or excuse me, John 3, 4. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. The law is the expression of God's moral nature. You could say of what it means morally for God to be light. And sin is anything that doesn't conform to it. In chapter 517, he says, All unrighteousness is sin. So if a person has been born again, they have been given a sight of who God actually is in himself. And in seeing God as he is in himself, we see ourselves as we truly are. We become aware of sin. And we become aware of sin as the greatest threat to our soul. And we want, more than anything, freedom from that sin. 
This is the fundamental reality of regeneration. It is not merely sin as a general acknowledgement to say, I know I'm a sinner or I know I'm not perfect. I and probably many of you before we were saved who grew up somewhere around the church would have said that. I know I'm not perfect. It isn't until the point that sin becomes your own and you feel it within your own soul and your own consciousness and your own guilt and your own separation from God and that becomes the greatest burden that you need an answer for. That's what happens in the life in one which the Spirit grants this gift of regeneration. Believers who have been cleansed from sin in Christ participate in the life of God, then have a continuing hatred of this sin that indwells us. And it moves the regenerate heart to confess sin. And so he says in verse 9, if we confess our sins, not denying our sins, even as, either as a principle, denying sin in terms of specific sins as it lacks conformity to who God is, but we confess our sins and know that he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, Shared life begins with confession because life in Christ also brings conviction of sin to the believer. They are aware of what sin is. They realize that the sin in them is the root of all of their misery and their sorrow and their unrest. Sin in them becomes a disturbance because it dishonors God and it offends them and it weakens service, it weakens fellowship, it weakens obedience, it weakens worship, and it is a great burden to them. It drives them in the life of the children of God to the only source of forgiveness and the restoration of the enjoyment of this life in Christ and His righteousness. And by confessing sin, then if you're a believer, you confess sin. And not merely as an act that brings about restoration but a believer confesses sin because of its corruption this is what it means to have a changed nature not merely forgiveness so that things will go better but it is in the heart of a believer a corrupting influence that they want freedom from look at what he says he says cleanses us from all sin not only forgives us but it cleanses us from all unrighteousness it causes the eyes of faith to look to the advocate who is with the Father in verse, chapter 2, verse 1, who is Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins, the satisfaction for our sins. So the greatest burden of the regenerate heart is that sin still remains in them. It is the greatest desire of the regenerate heart to love Christ with the entirety of his or her being, to shed this body of sin, that frustrates a wholehearted obedience and worship to God. That's the greatest frustration of a believer. Now, here's an interesting way to consider this another way. This comes from J.C. Ryle and a plug for those who haven't joined us for the book discussion. It's out of, it's out of his book, Holiness, on the chapters we're going to read. Uh, he says this. Now, think of this. Death works no change, meaning change or alteration in who a person is. Death works no change. The grave makes no alteration. Each will rise again with the same character in which he breathed his last. When a regenerate person dies, that is to say, they shed the body of sin, but who they are in Christ remains the same. Their essential nature that has been reborn again, that is a new creation, that already enjoys the realities at the deepest level of who they are, of the world to come. Nothing changes except shedding the body of sin so that the new life, the real life that has been granted in Christ can then have full expression in his presence, ultimately awaiting the resurrection and a body fit for that great day. Now a unregenerate person dies with a true self estranged and in truth at hostility with God and will enter into an eternal state of the just consequences of that estrangement and spiritual death. So consider these further words again by Ryle. Suppose for a moment that you were allowed to enter heaven without holiness. What would you do? What possible enjoyment could you feel there? To which of all the saints would you join yourself and by whose side would you sit down? Their pleasures are not your pleasures. Their taste are not your taste. Their character are not your character. So it is to say if heaven and the idea of Christ and holiness and beauty is not the driving force, 
within a person's heart, then there is question whether they share in the life of Christ. The very life of heaven abides in the true believers. The very life of God, of holy angels and the redeemed who have gone before. So the regenerate heart then hears these words with a particular anticipation. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it is not as yet as appeared as what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope on Him purifies Himself as He is pure. Why? Because He is the very embodiment of the life that His children share. And the greatest longing is to know the complete and fullest reality of that life in Him and to see Him. So to be regenerate and to share in God's life is to have an entirely new understanding of God and an attitude with sin. It is inconsistent with being able to internally love the things that God hates. To have no inner discomfort or disconsent with sin for which Christ died. That's inconsistent. So the key then is this. The believer has no rest until the very love of sin is conquered and greatly diminished and replaced with worship with love for Christ, and rest from the battle. So believers hate sin for sin's sake. And again, this is important to grasp. There are a lot of ways that sin can be wrongly hated. It can be wrongly hated because of the shame that it brings, because of the misery that it brings. It can be wrongly attacked through merely external acts of fasting, prayer, service, whatever, and never getting to the heart of the love of sin itself. But that's what the gospel does, and that's what the spirit does in the regenerate. So here is the mark on this point, just to summarize it. The key mark of this shared life is that the evidence of regeneration and sharing life in Christ, of saving faith, is not the absence of sin, but the hatred of it. It's not the absence of sin, but the hatred of it. And so the question is, is do you hate sin? Do you hate sin Within your own self, within your inner man, within your thoughts and your desires and your wants. Do you hate sin? Is your greatest burden that you want to worship Christ and obey Him, but sin hinders you from doing it as you want, and so you long to heaven so that you can fall at His feet and give Him everything without any hindrance at all? If that's not, then you have every reason to question whether you share the life of Christ. And whether you truly belong to him. If church is merely religion. Then that is not what salvation is. It is entering into a relationship with him who is light. And the very first mark of that relationship. Is to love the things he loves. And hates the things that he hates. And to be burdened with sin. And realize that our only hope is in Christ. And long for the day that we can be fully conformed to him. Secondly. And I'll do this rather quickly. To be share life with Christ then is also to have a new attitude towards sin and to have a new relationship with believers. One of the most fundamental expressions of the life of Christ is our relationship then to other believers. And so in 1 John chapter 2 verse 9, I'm writing a new commandment to you which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness to now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. The one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. We have a new relationship with believers, with Christians. And it is a relationship that is sourced in God's love in Christ's redemption. Whoever, chapter 5, verse 1, believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of him. And whoever loves the father loves the child born of him. You cannot claim to love Christ and not to love others who belong to Christ. You can't. John says that can't happen. You cannot be indifferent towards other Christians who are truly Christians and claim to love God and claim to love Christ. That is impossible. The very light and life of God is manifest in his act of self-sacrificing love for the good of his people. And that same love of God for his children is 
dwelled or indwells his people. It indwells them by his spirit. So any profession to love God while not also loving and seeking to love other believers is a mark of spiritual death. So he says, if anyone says, chapter 4, verse 20, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment that we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. So sharing in the life of God means sharing in God's love for his own as a necessary mark of love for him. It is in fact the unique love that believers have for one another that is the testimony of God's life in us, of God himself to the world. Listen to what he says in chapter 4. I just want to highlight this briefly. He says, Beloved, let us love one another. Love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God, knows God. Verse 8, The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifest in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son in the world, so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God loved us, we also ought to love one another. And here... No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. Listen to one that captured the main idea here that I'm emphasizing. Quote, What is more, while no one has ever seen God, believers can make God's love For the world visible by the way in which they love others. John's gospel affirms that while no one has ever seen God, Jesus has come to give a full account of him and to make him visible. John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Remarkably, in 1 John, this reasoning is taken one step further. Now it is not Jesus taking the or making the invisible God visible, rather, it is believers who do this by the love they have for one another. That means then the way that Christians live together as the community of the redeemed, as the indwelled by the Holy Spirit, as those who share in the life of Christ and manifest that life as the body of Christ on earth, they do that by the way that we love one another. It's, a, it's the love of family members, but in another sense it's far deeper than that. Because it's not merely a human relationship. It is shared participation in the very life of God in His Spirit, sharing in His salvation, included in His own love for the Son that is possessed equally by all those who belong to Him. And this again is important to note that it's grounded in this and sourced in the love of God in Christ because it's not merely doing good to others in the church. It's not merely serving, participating in help projects and doing good to a neighbor. That gives no evidence anybody can do that. An unbeliever could do that. A Catholic priest could do that. The Pope could do that. A Mormon could do that. Anyone could do that. That is not the evidence of the love that he is talking in the manifestation of the life of God among the church. These can all be done out of nothing more than human motives or false religious motives. It is specifically that love and service that is compelled by faith in the sacrifice of Christ and done in service to him and for his glory. It is a Christ-centered love. And it's shaped by that sacrifice. It is shaped by the fact that he gave up his life for us. And so he says in chapter 3, We know that we have passed out of death into life Because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. You know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Verse 16. We know love by this. That he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our life for the brethren. In other words. The very source of this Christian love. This spirit empowered love. That is a mark of shared life in Christ is grounded and sourced in the love that God has for us in Christ and being the propitiation for our sins, the satisfaction for our sins, being a Savior. And then the very character of that love is shaped by that sacrifice for us. In other words, the measure of our love for one another is Christ's love for us. That's the measure. 
That's both the motivation and the measure for Christian love. Love is not measured by emotional intensity, but by sacrifice, commitment to meet each other's needs, the greatest needs of soul and body. It is to say this then, that this kind of love is a love that transcends emotions. It's not contrary to them, but it transcends them. Or it transcends any sense of mere commitment to duty. It is a love that is grounded in the spiritual grasp and experience of God's love for us and His Son. It means it's not just sentiment, it's not just emotion, it's supernatural. And it consists of a deep impulse and compulsion with the inner man to do good and care for another Christian because of Christ's sacrifice for us. Because of who He is. Not because of them, not because of any other reason, but because of who God is and who He is for us in Christ. The life of God manifests in Christ's own life and His The Father's love for the Son and the Son's for the Father is the love then that inhabits a regenerate person. Let me take this just one other angle. That's well enough. And he does give the example of meeting those needs, whoever has the world's goods and sees sees his brother in need and so forth. So it is certainly caring for the physical well-being of each other is a manifestation of that love. But it's more than that. Because the reality is that the exercise of this love is going to have much sin and failure this side of heaven. And so one of the truest demonstrations then in which the body of Christ demonstrates life in Christ sourced in his love for us at the cross and his resurrection shaped by that same cross and his life of sacrifice for his people it is this, it is marked by a willingness and the actual forgiving one another of sin, bearing with one another, whoever has a complaint against anyone, not holding on to bitterness to one another, overlooking personal offenses, not taking into account a wrong suffered. That's the demonstration of love. That is the demonstration of a, re- of a renewed heart. It is not judging one another's motives. It is accepting one another as they are and only having as your goal to be a source of spiritual good to them, to edify them, to build them up. That's the body of Christ. Love is the perfect bond of unity. And so how is this love manifest to the world as they say, oh, how they love each other. Not that they never sinned and offend each other, but even that is absorbed in this greater reality of the Christ they profess who died and rose again for them. So that that dominating reality, the very object of our faith, the very end of our worship is manifest in the way that we treat one another and how we walk with one another in humility and love. As Paul said to the church in Ephesus, it's how we live in humility and gentleness with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So this is a mark of the life of God. One is that we see God who is light and in Him there is no darkness at all and the deepest desire of a regenerate heart says everything that God reveals Himself to be, we say, yes, I delight in that. That is true. That corrects my thinking. That is what I love and that is what I want to love more. He defines all of right, wrong, good, evil, everything is defined by God, His nature, and who He's revealed Himself to be in Scripture. And one of the first marks of that being a true expression of our heart is to say then that changes my attitude towards sin. My own sin. Sin then becomes my burden. And I confess it. Sin becomes the thing I want to rid myself of. Sin becomes the thing I most battle against. Sin becomes the thing that drives me repeatedly to the foot of the cross to remember there my debt was paid and there the power was purchased for me to live for Him and to have hope in a world to come where I will be conformed to the image of His glory perfectly, ultimately in a resurrected body. It means there's a new attitude towards sin. We cannot accept sin. It means we, the true believer doesn't approach sin with superficial means, but doesn't deal with just the behavior of sin, but wants at the very root to not love sin and replace that with a greater love for Christ. That's what it means to be regenerate. And if, if we can be content merely with the stopping of a deed while holding on to the love of sin, then that is not a mark 
of life. Secondly, a way that that shows itself out is how we love the brethren with a particular love, a peculiar love that is sourced in and shaped by the sacrifice of Christ that extends all that we have received in him. Love, mercy, forgiveness, grace, kindness. And then when we all fail to do so, we're ready to overlook that and move forward to live in a way that is for the good and the building up of the body of Christ in love. So... This is what it means, we'll consider next week, what it means to share life in relationship to the world and relationship to the word and to scripture. But as we come to the table, remember that the very picture of this table is again that we are the body of Christ. We are the people of God. We are the family of God. It's for believers. We come here reminding that our life is, or being reminded that our life is in Christ through what he purchased for us. Right now, he presently is indwelling his church by the Spirit. And so if there's any lack of conformity in your life or any areas of sin, even on the two few areas that we covered, now is a good time to confess them and commit once again to walk with the Lord in holiness, righteousness, and truth. To confess our sin knowing that it's paid for and to express our longing to be conformed to who he is. For his glory. So let me pray and then the men will pass out the elements. Father, thank you for forgiveness of sin. As we read in Paul earlier, that the law is a tutor to lead us to Christ. The law shuts up all under sin. Nobody comes before the reality of who you are and what's required, particularly even in the law, and can say, I have done that. The rich young ruler was self-deceived. But those who have eyes open, come to the law, and as Paul said, when the law came, I died, and sin became exceedingly sinful, and he cried out, wretched man that I am, but then he said, who will free me from this body of death, thanks be to God, that there is forgiveness and salvation and hope in Christ, and so we come celebrating that truth, demonstrating that that and you alone and what you've accomplished for us in Christ is our only hope. Will you deepen and solidify and expand and broaden that hope within us as we walk with you and seek you? And Lord, for any who may be among us who are outside of the saving grace, would you so work upon them to compel them to cry out to you, to make it real for them? And we ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.